Hi, welcome to James Miller Lifeology, where you learn to simplify and transform your spirit, mind, and body. My name is James Miller. I'm a licensed psychotherapist and a composer. Thank you so much for joining with us today. Let's get started. I have a great show for you today. I'm going to help you realize you have a choice in every situation you are in. I'll also be interviewing extradition expert James Muller, who shares his personal story of being tortured and imprisoned in a Thai prison for a crime he didn't commit. Did you know that I have a YouTube channel? I have over 152 episodes that I've done specifically for you. I know some people struggle with listening to a half-hour show, but these Lifeology lessons are about three minutes long, and they'll teach you one lesson that you can learn each day to simplify and transform your spirit, mind, and body. Go to my website, jamesmillerlifeology.com, and you can subscribe to that YouTube channel there, or simply go to youtube.com and search for my name, James Miller Lifeology. You have a choice. If I were to come up behind you and startle you, you would be surprised. But after a few seconds, that surprise would probably fade, and you may even laugh about it. But if you were to remain surprised or fearful for the next hour, well, that doesn't make sense, does it? What we often don't realize is every situation, we have a choice in how we look at it. There is a natural response that we have, but after that natural immediate response fades, then it becomes a choice in how we look at something or how we frame a situation. Have you ever heard someone say, you make me so mad, or I had no choice, they made me do it. Those types of phrases or that mentality actually is very limiting because what we don't realize is nobody can make us look at a situation a certain way. We make a choice to decide how we're going to respond to that situation. Think of your thought life or any situation like a Rubik's cube. Sometimes we think there's only one color, but when you spin the cube, you can look at it from six different ways. And that's basically any situation. You can spin the cube or spin your perception to determine how you're going to respond. Sometimes we often feel like we're the victim, and rightly so, you might be the victim. But when you perceive the situation that you are a victim, all of a sudden you feel as if there are no choices. I wish we could campaign that anyone who is a victim of some sort could be vindicated. Unfortunately, that's not real life. So when we spin the cube and look at the situation in a different way, we have to look at it in the sense of what can I do that's the healthiest for me? What can I do to protect myself? What can I do to be proactive and move myself out of this victimhood situation so that I can triumph over it? Many times we can do that with our words, or sometimes we can even remove ourselves from the situation because that's proactive for us. But what about those times when we're in a situation and we can't change it? where the person won't leave us or we're trapped and we feel like there's no physical movement that we can create. Well, this is the biggest lesson here is our mentality or our mindset is the part of us that nobody can change, that nobody has control over. One person that I really admire is Viktor Frankl. He was a very famous psychologist who was in a concentration camp. All of his family members were murdered and he found that he needed to find a reason to live. And one of his reasons for living was the memory of his wife. He knew that she wanted him to live on and to overcome this situation. And once he found that purpose, then it started to open up a different mentality for him. He realized that the Nazis as brutal as they were, could not change his perception about them. He could choose to hate them. He could choose to ignore them. He could choose whatever he wanted to in his mind because that's where the freedom came. It's such a powerful revelation when we realize we have a choice in any situation. We can choose to live in that victimhood, and by no means am I minimizing the struggle, but simply the facts. When justice is not served and we are a victim, do we stay in that mentality of a victimhood, or do we rise above it and move beyond that to do something that's proactive for us? This could be from the largest thing to the smallest thing. From the smallest thing, let's say you're driving in traffic and someone cuts you off. Your reframe could be, well, you're learning patience in that moment. 
Or you could be very angry and all of a sudden have road rage, which leads to something else. Or let's think about something more extreme. When you are in an abusive relationship and you feel like you can't get out, you can make choices. You can make choices in your thought patterns. You can make choices in your self-talk that you have regarding the situation. So today's lesson is very important because I want us to always realize that we have a choice regardless of what situation we're in or what we're facing today. You have a choice to determine how you're going to respond to it. You have a choice to determine how you're going to spin that cube to reframe the situation. Yes, there are many injustices in our life, and unfortunately, we will never see the justice in many areas, but you have a responsibility to yourself to live a life that's proactive to overcome any situation. Nobody can do this for you. When you find that your word choices, when you're perhaps telling people what happened that day, that person made you so mad, or they made you respond in a certain way, unfortunately, that's not the proactive stance, and you're allowing them to dictate how you're going to respond in life. And over time, that response then turns into victimhood or turns into a reactive lifestyle. And when we are reactive, we're not growing and developing into the person that we could be. So I would really challenge you today, in every situation, remind yourself, you have a choice. You can still respond the same way you did before, but realize that's a choice. And when you realize that you have choices in everything you do, you can become the person that you want to be. You can overcome any situation. Make the healthy choice. I wanted to take a quick minute just to thank all of you who continually support and listen to James Miller Lifeology. It's been an absolutely amazing journey for me. There are so many wonderful things that are happening over here on this end that I definitely want to share with you. So for the next few months, every person who signs up for my newsletter is going to be put into a drawing. And in this monthly drawing, whomever wins is going to get a free 30-minute Skype call with me, James Miller, to see if James Miller Lifeology can help you simplify and transform your spirit, mind, and body. Simply go to my website, jamesmillerlifeology.com, and the newsletter will pop up. Simply put in your name and your email, and it will immediately enter you into the drawing for this free 30-minute Skype call with me. So sign up for the newsletter today. James Muller is the world's foremost expert on international extradition and the way it is used to circumvent the right of American citizens. He is going to share his own story of being a tortured prisoner in Southeast Asia and how he endured his captivity. Welcome to my show, James. Thanks for having me. It's great to be with you, James. Well, thank you. You know, when I was reading your one sheet or the information that you had sent me, I was really surprised. I've never actually had a guest like you, which has experienced what you've experienced on my show. So it is definitely an honor to have you be with us today. You know, James, the reason you never had anybody with the experience I've had is in the history of the United States, I'm the only American who's ever been extradited to a foreign country to be executed. Wow. This was done by circumventing U.S. laws and helping a foreign country to help the United States receive prisoners they wanted from that country. Actually traded. In that time frame, we had extraditions that were extrajudicial, which was common moving terrorists around the world. As an American citizen, it wasn't possible to to have me extrajudicially sent to another country. So they actually created new law to do it. Wow. I fought extradition here for nine months and finally realized through the advice of my attorneys that nobody would ever be able to win this type of case. Mm -hmm. Reason is there was no charge against me in the United States to fight. If you're charged with crime in the U.S., you, of course, have a due process where you can argue your points and your case and probably win the case. But when you're charged in another country, there's no judicial process to prove innocence or guilt. What there is instead is a diplomatic treaty between two countries to trade suspects at the request of a foreign country. So the United States could request prisoners from their country and they could request prisoners from our country. And the diplomatic agreement is that upon that request, 
either country would comply. And so you were sent to Southeast Asia? I was sent to the Kingdom of Thailand, where I was charged with contract murder. I lived in Thailand at the time. And while I was on my honeymoon, one of my ex-employees was shot by another one of my employees. And when that happened, that news press reported that it was a company-sponsored killing instead of a personal killing. So two men got drunk, two men fought, one died. The end result in the news was that he was killed by his boss, that boss being me. So as if you, your company, sanctioned the hit on a fellow employee. Exactly correct. And in the United States and in the Kingdom of Thailand, they have uh, charges that are called RICO, the Racketeer Influence and Corruption Organization Act. And under that type of a charge, you don't have to be involved with the crime that your company commits. You just have to be a part of the company that commits a crime. So an accessory of some sort. Exactly correct. Even if you're not an accessory, if you just are part of an organization that's deemed criminal, anything that criminal organization does, every member of the organization is charged. So were the rest of your employees charged as well? No, they weren't. And, and the reason they weren't is the rest of my employees weren't as, as well off as I was. My company in Thailand was significant. It was a several hundred million dollar company. We did business all over the world. And there was a, a large capital gain if I was, in fact, the guilty party for the officials involved. So they went for the, the money and they, they froze it. They, they took the properties. They took the money. And then the way to keep that was to have me executed. The crime I was charged with has no other penalty except for the death penalty. So the idea was I'd go there, I'd face a firing squad, I'd be shot in the heart, and that would be the end of it. And those assets would be delivered to the appropriate parties or the ones they thought was appropriate. So it was a difficult situation, James. It was a tough thing. I have no words for that. I mean, I can't even imagine what that was like for you to be charged with something. You were not even a part of it at all. And then to know that you're going to die for something that you didn't do. It was difficult. And just as difficult, my wife is Thai. And this was the first time she was over here. We were on a honeymoon. So we were married 16 days when I was taken off a plane by a SWAT team in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, my gosh. Out of this, this process. So it was really difficult on a marriage, if you can imagine. Oh, my gosh. I, I cannot imagine that. So when you were extradited there, we're, obviously you were put in prison. Tell us about the, the conditions of the prison. Well, you couldn't imagine the difference between a prison in Southeast Asia and a prison in the United States. One of the first things you'll notice when you enter them is there are no walls. Everything is bars. So it's a giant cage in the middle of a jungle. And inside that cage are smaller cages. When it rains, it rains on you. When it's hot, when the sun's shining, it shines on you. When the mosquitoes come, they sleep on you. None of the conveniences you would see in a country like ours, for instance, there's no such thing as a toilet. There are holes in the ground and buckets of water. And there's no segregation of the population. So if you're a mass murderer, violent criminal, you are housed with somebody that's in there for a DUI or a traffic ticket. For how long were you in the prison? You know, I was in and out of the prison often. The last time I was in was for 1,397 days. It's three years and two days. The first time was for nine months, and the second time was for nine months. In my first incarceration, I was extradited under a treaty between the United States and Thailand, the accused, that... If I go, I can only be charged with the crime that I'm being extradited for. And if I win, that will allow me 45 days to leave the country. Well, I won that case in nine months, and I was immediately rearrested and ended up being charged over and over again. I actually ended up having four trials in 12 years. So it took me 12 years to get home 
Five of those years were in the prison. The rest, I was in between cases out on bail, but not allowed to travel. Well, help me understand what with that treaty, because the way I understand you to say that is it's you can only be charged for it once. And then that's. Yes, you can't you can't even be charged with any other crime except for the crime that was mentioned in the extradition application. However, since nobody had ever been extradited under this treaty before, when the Kingdom of Thailand decided that the treaty was not not going to outweigh their legal system. In other words, they decided to go ahead and use their legal system, as was lawful in Thailand charged me with other crimes. The treaty's weight was discounted. And when the State Department got involved, which was their duty, the State Department had a duty to make sure that I was honored with the specifics of the treaty. The State Department came to visit me and they said, Mr. Mueller, we've never had a situation like this and we have no recourse for it. There's no precedent. So the only way that you could be out of here is if Washington itself decided to get involved. And unfortunately for me, at that time, George W. Bush had just deemed that Thailand was a most favored nation of the U.S. And so I knew that Washington would not get involved. And they told me to my face, they said, you're on your own and we wish you luck. So then by that treaty, once again, they had to extradite you because of the good faith with Thailand? Yeah, the governments that are partners to the treaty don't have the ability to pick and choose what parts of the treaty they'll honor. So our country, of course, honored the treaty, unfortunately for me. Fortunately, also, we were the only party that honored the treaty. Oh, man. So I won that case, and I knew I would win it, James. I, I knew I had nothing to do with it. I knew I was in San Jose, Costa Rica at the time that people saw me in Thailand doing crimes. Obviously, it wasn't me. Yeah, of course. I was able to prove that. I still had to go through the trial, and I still had to remain incarcerated. What shocked me incredibly was... When I won that case, it was an international sensation. I walked out of that prison. I was still shackled because shackles are, when they shackle you, they don't use keys. They actually hammer iron bars around. And then they put a 10 kilo chain between those, those iron bars. So there is no escaping and it's quite an uncomfortable way to live. However, the, the rule of law was that I would be transported back to the prison. They would pry those shackles off. I would walk out, I'd get a sh the first shower in nine months, I'd have the first meal in nine months, I'd book a ticket and I'd fly home to my wife and baby. The reality was I got back to the prison, the shackles didn't come off, and I was charged with another crime. As I objected because of the treaty, the, the answer they gave was simple. The treaty is between governments, we're law enforcement, we don't care about the treaty. And they just went on. I can imagine what emotions you were experiencing at that time. I mean, here you are with a wife and, and a newborn and you had already been there for nine months and you go back home. And then all of a sudden when the State Department comes and you hear all this and then you're brought back there, I can't even imagine the, the amount of despair you must have experienced. Well, I, I will tell you this, that despair would be a nice, nice compared to what I felt. Um, the, the mix of emotions that you have in a, in a case like this, when I was extradited to Thailand, I was I was flown from Atlanta, Georgia in chains and I was handed the four Thai commandos at the L.A. International Airport and put in the back of a Thai Airways flight and flown for 17 hours to a jungle prison where nobody spoke English, there is no constitution, there is no rule of law that is anything used to what we can conceive of. And nobody wins. So as I sat in that prison, I, I was in the death row section of it, people were, were just getting sentenced to death every day. They'd go to court 
And some of the people that were sentenced to death were incredibly significant people in Thailand. But the rule of law is strong there. And I'll tell you this, that in the in the trial situations, in the courtrooms, the, the, the courts are actually quite judicial. They do their job and they follow the rule of law, which is why I was able to win all the cases. And what happens in between is, is nobody likes to lose. And in Asia, face is a big thing. So for somebody to, to make an accusation, they will do everything they can to make that accusation true, even as the evidence unfolds and shows that it's not true. Mm. Nobody goes backwards. So they'll spin it in a different way. Absolutely. Sure. When I was reading some of the things in your book, I saw that you had broken your back while you were in there. Well, I didn't break my back myself. Well, I'm sorry. Your back was broken when you were in there? My back was broken with a, um, a bamboo stick that had a rubber tip to it. And, and the man didn't mean to break my back. He just wanted, um, he wanted me to comply. And he swung that thing so hard, James. I didn't know it was broken for a day. Next day, I was paralyzed. I was actually paralyzed for close to a year. And during that time, one of the difficulties I had, which was as bad as anything else, is there was no access to medical care. So I was paralyzed from the neck down, and I was left on a concrete floor in an HIV, hepatitis, and tuberculosis ward. So I thought for sure I was going to die from the TB, not from the broken back. And as I laid there, I wondered, which one am I going to die from? I'm hoping I don't, and I'm praying I don't, and I'm, I'm convinced I won't. And I did everything I could to not. But during that time, the Department of State, who has representatives at the embassy in Bangkok, had come to visit a couple of times. And I had pleaded, I need medical care, I need medical care. And there was nothing they can do. And what they told me is, when you get out of here and go home, have it fixed. Anyway, the Thai prison officials actually acquiesced, and they were very nice. And they, they got me out to a police hospital, and I got the surgery done. So I actually walked out of there and being wheelchaired out. That was a great feeling walking out of there. I, I can't imagine, sure. What, what was it that motivated you to hold on one more day, one more second longer? How did you, how did you maintain that hope? You know, it's funny. I, I have a friend, and he used to speak well. And I would listen to him because sometimes there's, there's an, a person that comes into your life that you know when they're talking, they're saying something worthwhile. And he would say this. He would say, Jim, you can handle any pain in life if you know when it ends. Give you an example, um, a woman having a baby. You know, they say it's the worst pain they ever go through, but yet they endure it because they know it's gonna end and know what the prize is gonna be. And I knew I had a great life. I mean, I have had and have everything in life that this life has to offer and the opportunity to increase it. A beautiful wife, beautiful baby, we're okay money-wise, we have nice homes, life is good. While I was in there, I would compare it to, to hell and, heaven and hell. Where did I want to end up? And I wouldn't allow it to happen. I actually had this ongoing argument with George Bush um, because it was actually John, it was John Ashcroft, his attorney general, who had sent me over there. And the order was signed by Colin Powell. So my, my argument with George was, you're not taking these years away from me. I will get out of here and I'm going to be better when I get out of here. And let me tell you that anxiety, pain, fear, they all come in and you lose your focus on that. But one of the things I write about is every problem has a solution and you need to live in the solution. Uh, Napoleon Hill, he, he once wrote that the, the subconscious mind believes everything the conscious mind tells it. 
And so whatever it is, the dominant thought of your conscious mind, the subconscious mind will believe it and then work to create its physical equivalent. So I told my conscious mind every day and I ignored everybody that I was going home tomorrow. I'm going home tomorrow. I'm going to be picked up in my Mercedes Benz. I'm going to have a bath. I'm going to have a great dinner. I'm going to hug my wife and hold my kid. And people would say I was insane. You know, I talk these things out because you say it, it becomes real. Exactly. I would say it to the people that were in prison with me. And some of them, I, I was in there with a couple of Iranian suicide bombers who actually, they were failed suicide bombers. They blew their own legs and arms off. And so we were in this hospital ward together and they would call me insane because I would say I'm going home tomorrow. But I knew this, that if I didn't focus on that, I'd have to focus on the pain and the death. So I saw people die on a daily basis. I saw people in great suffering on a daily basis. If I were to focus on that, I knew that would be my result. So I focused on the dream or the vision, if you want, of going home and holding that baby and kissing that wife. And actually, the, the first comment I gave when I was released is I was being interviewed by the reporters. They said, what's the first thing you're going to do? And of course, the expectation was probably about having fun. But I had focused so much on having a bath because I hadn't had one in years, right? And I look back at that tape and I just kind of laughed because it just came out, I'm going to take a bath. <laughs> you know, my, my conscious mind and my subconscious mind were in sync. Mm -hmm. The first thing I was going to do through, through the years was I'm going to take a bath and I'm going to go kiss my wife and I'm going to hug my daughter. And that's exactly what happened. So it's amazing how you can control your actions and you can control your emotion even. If you'll concentrate on the outcome that you envision instead of the outcome that is staring you in the face, yeah, on a daily basis, the people would just die. I mean, I, I would be chained to a guy and he'd die <clears throat> and I'd have to wait till they they took him away. And I would tell myself every day, well, God bless that guy, man. And, you know, we would talk when they were sick and I, we knew they were going to die. And I'm thinking, I please don't let me catch this disease. And I never. So I was really grateful of that. But in the end. The subconscious mind is the most powerful weapon we have because it will create a physical equivalent of whatever your conscious mind concentrates on. And I use that to this day. If you've got a problem, and we all do, whatever size they are, and you can't find a way to overcome it, it's because your solution is too small. If your solution's too small, it's because you're not concentrating on the solution. You know, solutions are alive. Once the subconscious mind grasps your solution and your desire, it will grow it into what it needs to be to kill the problem. In the end, I came out of there better than I ever was. My marriage better than it ever is. My health better than it ever was. And I look back and I wonder, how could this be? How can you be chained to a wall where they're going to shoot you through the heart, have your back broken, spend years in a foreign country, go through the torture, go through the pain and come out better? And what I realized is anybody can, because today always starts today. I never had today start tomorrow. It started today. Why not have a great one? And, and I'll tell you that, James, we in, in this household anyway, we we choose every day that it's going to be the best day we ever had. And so far, we haven't been disappointed. The way, the way I typically teach, teach my, my patients when um, they're trying to make a change in their life is a lot of it has to do with when you want to have a huge change. You know, kind of what you're talking about, when you allow your subconscious and your conscious mind to, to link together, 
one of the best times to do that is just before you fall asleep, your conscious mind and your subconscious mind start to meet just as you're about to fall asleep when you can really focus on the dream or whatever the solution is, a problem is, or whatever, whatever it is you want to change. That is the time then which your, your conscious mind then, when it f- starts to become dormant, your subconscious mind takes over and whatever the last conscious thought you have is what your subconscious thought then ruminates on and then it finds the solution, it finds that problem and it actualizes it. So that's why for people who want to go through smoking cessation, that's the why the people listen to it before they go to sleep. And so when they, when they sleep, that subconscious part of them really links up and creates right. the solution. So that's why people, they wake up in the middle of the night or the next day and they're thinking, oh my gosh, I have this amazing answer for this. Well, it's because... Just like you said, your conscious and subconscious mind link up together to create the solution that you need. That, that is so great to hear you you verbalize that mm. because I've never been able to verbalize it, but I live it. Sure. Every night before I before I lay down, that was the last things in my mind is I'm going home. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm yeah. going home. Yeah. And when I walked out of there, there were hundreds of people that heard me say this over the years. The last time I was in there was three years and two days. And they would hear, they would ask me, when are you going home? And every day my answer was tomorrow. Mm. They started calling me Mr. Tomorrow. <laughs> which, then, but, which then solidified your dream because when other people say it, you, you absolutely. Aw- it, it becomes audible and then it becomes real for you. Right. They unconsciously bought the dream. But the funny thing is nobody believed it. And they didn't have to because I believed it. But on my way out, Every one of them that was still alive, because a lot of them weren't. A lot of people perished during that time, and other people had gone home, and other people had gone on to other facilities. But when I was going out, the ones that were there, including the staff, all said the same thing. We knew you were going home. Now, they could not know that from the reports. They could not know that from the charges. They could not know that from the sentences or the situation. So I believe they knew it, and they knew it because they saw it in me. I didn't know that I emanated what I did, but I heard later that everybody knew there was a light around me that said, I'm going home. Well, I think that's the thing. When you can truly believe what it is you say, when, when those two things sync up, that's a form of faith. And I don't mean that in a religious, but that faith, what we, faith is really what you believe and you believe it so much that it will come true, that it does come true. And so when they actually saw that the, the, the linkage between your words and your demeanor and your disposition and the forward thinking, the solution focus that you had, it's, it's obvious that they were able to see that regardless of the situation. I think that's a, an amazing takeaway for so many people in, in any situation that, that they may be going through even today. Anybody's problem can be solved with the same actualization of focusing on the solution to your problem. You talk about smoking cessation. That's a difficult thing to quit. I've seen people struggle with that all their life and never quit. And then other people do. And I really believe the difference is the belief. And you get that belief from your subconscious mind. Well, I think it goes back to, you know, whatever you focus on becomes a reality. And if you focus on the problem, well, then that's not proactive. There's, that's very passive in your belief system. But when you focus on the solution, that's where the proactive stance comes. It's, it's actionable. It's, it's doable. And that gives you the energy to then create whatever it is you need. And sometimes that can only be in our mind at the moment, but that germinates and creates the movement of our, of our body, of the actions, of our mind, of our conscious mind. And that's what eventually gets us to the answer that we You know, the amazing thing about that system you just talked about, which is a system that we're all born with, is it works 100% of the time. After going through what would be hopefully the biggest battle of my life and seeing its 100% success rate, I've now realized that any other object that gets in my path or any other obstacle to my success and my wished endeavors 
is easily overcome. The stress of expanding my business is a lot less than the stress of getting off a death row. And the stress of well, even, you know, you, you go to a fitness center to increase your health, right? You, you change your diet to increase your health. And it can be stressful if you don't feel you're healthy enough. But try walking after your back's broken and you haven't walked for a year. Mm-hmm. When I first stood up, my legs wouldn't hold me. Now I can run a marathon. So what I found is if I focus on where I want to be instead of where I'm at, I always get where I want to be. And the amazing thing, James, is as soon as I get where I want to be and I celebrate it, I don't want to be there anymore. There's always another mountain. You know, there's always another level or another. So it's an exciting pathway to life to realize that the only obstacles in our path are false and they're normally self-imposed. There's a chapter in, in a book I wrote that's called Fear, False Evidence Appears Real. And the reason I focused on that is as I went to trial, there were 60 witnesses that testified against me at the murder trial. And each one of them on their face had evidence that I was guilty of this crime. And had I not responded to the evidence, of course, I would have been convicted because on its face, you'd have to say this guy's guilty. Go ahead and shoot him. Well, what I did was I took each of the witnesses singularly and looked at the evidence they had. You compartmentalized it. Sure. Yes. And then we then we just attacked each one individually. And when I say we attacked them, we didn't attack them personally. We just attacked their evidence because the evidence was false. And it was it was machinated evidence to designed by professionals to gain a conviction. And at the end of that trial, all 60 witnesses recanted, every one. And to have that kind of a success rate, you understand if if 50 had recanted and 10 stayed, I would have been convicted. Hmm. Probably if 59 had recanted and one stayed with the story, I would have been convicted. To be convicted just takes somebody proving you committed a crime. It doesn't take 60 people proving it. But in the end, 100% of them changed their story under oath, under direct cross-examination. And as I just read, I just finished the, the story on it and just got the edited version back. So as I read it, and I read the story that I live. When I lived the story, I did what I had to do every day to achieve what I had to achieve every day to get the ultimate outcome. But when I read it and I see the miraculous transformation that took place in the voice and the words of these people, not in singularity, but in mass, I'm just amazed. And I'm convinced now more than ever that there's nothing beyond our accomplishment except what we believe. Mm -hmm. And that's why I say fear is a lie. We're afraid of things that once we attack them, once we stand up to them, and once we investigate, we find out they're shallow. And you can always get through them. Exactly. You know, one thing I was like, it's kind of prosaic in everything you just said, but it goes back to, is it a stumbling block or is it a stepping stone? Whatever our situation is in front of us, when we reframe it, just as we get to it, we determine if it's an obstacle or if it's something we can use to launch us to the next area of our life. That's great. Well, James, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I wish we had much more time to discuss this. I know you wrote a book. I know you mentioned just a little bit about that. Where would my listeners be able to find out more about you, about your book, and all the amazing things that you are about? Well, I will tell you this, that our book will be out for Christmas. And of course, you can buy it on Amazon and hopefully every bookstore in the country. And it's called I Cannot Fail. Um, You can reach me at James Muller Author on my Twitter address or on Facebook at Complete Living One. And I will tell you this, that listening to your show the other day and then talking with you today, I appreciate the work you do. Oh, thank you so much, James. I really appreciate that. I also want to thank you, the listener, for joining with us today. Please subscribe to this radio show through whichever portal you joined with us today. Also, please go to my website where you may enroll in the Lifeology Academy, watch my YouTube episodes, and read all the articles I've written just for you. 
If you'd like to become a guest or show sponsor, please visit jamesmillerlifeology.com. And of course, follow me on all social media platforms under the name James Miller Lifeology. Once again, thank you so much for joining with us today. I'll talk to you soon.